The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, January 17th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. As talk of those who are playing and attending the inauguration dominates, talk that I will engage in in the spiel, I do have to say something that's perhaps been undernoted. If you depend on presidential inaugurations for your entertainment, you are missing out on a lot of what's going on in 2017. I mean, even if to the inauguration fun, you add the glory, splendor, and grandeur of Olympics opening and closing ceremonies, and even all the college football bowl game halftime shows, add them all together, I still say Hulu's the better choice for your entertainment dollar. Not even Hulu Plus. Not even Netflix streaming. Netflix one DVD at a time mail plan. Even YouTube. Oh no, not YO YouTube. YouTube. Online videos compiled by University of Utah undergrads. Even those are more entertaining as a whole than the scintillating excitement of an inauguration. You know who loves inaugurations? The networks love inaugurations. They love any activity that can be scheduled for, hell, not for 40 years in advance, that has marching and pageantry and military bands and ceremonies. And this is key. Long stretches where there's nothing going on and the anchor people can tell you all about the marching and the pageantry and the ceremony. Now the Marine Honor Guard will fold the flag in a triangle and he will hand it off to the Special Forces Honor Guard who will refold it in a rhombus and in a gloved hand he will give it to the Speaker of the House who will hand it in slightly thicker gloves to the Chief Justice who will pass it for a time to the Chief Lobbyist for the Dairy Industry who will hand it back to the Chief Justice. All right, fine. They love it. The anchor people love it. You know, the broadcasters really do believe that they are the guardians of democracy and that democracy equals all these trappings that can be televised. It is largely masturbatory and beside the point of what's important. I covered one inauguration, the second Bush's first inauguration, 2001, January 20th, 2001. Here's the Wikipedia entry for that. The first inauguration of George W. Bush as the 43rd president took place January 20th, 2001. The inauguration marked the commencement of the first four-year term of George W. Bush's president, Dick Cheney as VP. William Rehnquist administered the oath at 12.01 and estimated 300,000 people attended. The entire Wikipedia entry for that event is 145 words. And three of those words were Brooks and Dunn. And another four were Wayne Newton and Ricky Martin. And those were the only people who were listed as having performed the pre-inauguration. And who cares? And that's what it deserves. Because this, on Friday, this will be the first day of the Trump presidency. It will be far from the most important day. And that is why, in my spiel, I say, don't boycott or do boycott. It's all fine as an act of defiance. Of course, it will be horribly destabilizing if that became the majority position, but it won't be, so have your boycott. But before that, we bring on Norman Ornstein, one of the finest students of Congress and government, to answer my questions about strategy, obstruction of a Trump presidency versus cooperation.
As part of my ongoing effort to recapture the norms of civilized political debate, I have on one of my favorite norms of civilized <laughs> political debate. He's Norman Ornstein, a longtime observer of Congress and politics. And he, along with Thomas Mann, with whom he works at the American Enterprise Institute, is the author of The Broken Branch, that branch being Congress. Norm, do we have to expand that? Broken Branches? <laughs> Well, remember, Mike, that that was followed by a book called It's Even Worse Than It Looks. Yeah. And another one, sort of a revision of that, called It's Even Worse Than It Was. Yeah. And uh, now it might be run for your lives. Is there a word for being both prescient and impotent? Uh, It's called depressing. Yeah. You know, having been around and in some ways a part of the world of journalism for a very long time, you know, not uh, and sometimes uh, I would say I'm not a reporter, but I play one on television at times. Um, a lot of my frustration went to the press corps because, uh, as we pointed out in the book, it's even worse than it looks. We were dealing with a problem during the Obama years that really had uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, the so-called young guns in the House Republicans, which included uh, Eric Cantor, Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy, two of them now, of course, the top two leaders uh, in the House, who from the get-go basically chose uh, a strategy of mass obstruction uh, against everything that Obama and Democrats were trying to do, and a party that had gone very, very far to the right. Democrats had moved, but not nearly as much. And what we saw was a press corps that shrugged it all off. Uh, you know, the term that I think we could probably attribute to James Fallows of false equivalents became really another norm. And it continues, and it's continued to this day. People who behave badly had been held accountable. We might have different outcomes. Instead, what we're seeing is People who behave badly ended up uh, on top of the world. Okay, I'm going to remember the phrase. I want to come back to people who behave badly. But let's talk about mass obstruction. Other than reasons of ethics and efficacy, why shouldn't the Democrats engage in mass destruction? Uh, Sorry, obstruction. It was a successful strategy for the Republicans. You know, you have to take into account ethics. <laughs> and, you know, part of what really concerned me is you, you could, uh, I suppose, live with yourself by saying, you know, for a couple of years, we're going to make the lives of people worse than they otherwise would be, lots of people, but for a greater good, that once we're able to take over, then everything will be just fine. But that continued for two years and four years and six years and fundamentally eight years. And, you know, to do the same thing means you're going to hurt a lot of people. Now, having said that, I think a strategy which says we're not going to a priori say that everything you want to do, we will vote against, delegitimize, uh, make impossible or difficult to do. There will be a few areas where you propose things we counter-propose, we can work something out that will be satisfactory. And you could say that about a reasonable infrastructure package, for example. But on the things that are really going to hurt people, or that are out of bounds, or that are reckless, we will do everything in our power to stop them from happening and to highlight the problems with them. That, I think, is an appropriate, a perfectly okay strategy to use. And I suspect that's what Democrats are going to do.
If you're Charles Schumer, I have heard the argument, don't even work with Trump, don't normalize him. But of course, you want to do whatever you can to get the best parts of your agenda passed and to lessen the harm that the worst parts of his agenda uh, would do. So what tactics do you use to bring that about? How much, how much bluster or the threat of, you know, filibusters or not working with him, how, how effective will that be? Well, the one tool that Democrats have is the Senate and the filibuster, and the reluctance of a significant number of Republicans uh, to blowing that up. Um, now, I think, frankly, a good part of the reason is those who are institutionalists recognize that, one, if you blow up the filibuster for legislation, you're completely changing the character of the Senate in ways that you can't even begin to foresee. And two, it's the nature of the Senate, especially that you might be able to hold it for another uh, four years, but then the worm will turn and you'll create a different kind of majority and it could come back to bite you. Uh, but if you use it on everything, then the pressure and the temptation to blow it up will be there. So you need to be at least a little bit selective. Uh, it can't be used anymore on confirmations except for the Supreme Court. And that part of the uh, rule is almost certain to go away within months. But you can use it for legislation for everything except this blockbuster reconciliation package. And you use it when you can't get anything reasonable out of uh, the president and uh, Republicans in Congress. Now, there's another reason that they might keep the filibuster, which is Mitch McConnell wants to expand his numbers next time. Uh, and if there are crazy measures coming out of the House of Representatives, in a lot of ways, it's better for him to be able to blame Schumer and the Democrats for blocking them mm. than for doing it himself and becoming the target of wrath of everybody else. They may be able to have that weapon at their disposal, but you don't want to use it uh, on everything. Now, you know, having said that, there are two things to keep in mind. One is the challenge to Schumer that there are 25 Democrats up next time, close to a dozen are in vulnerable places in states that voted for Trump. So you can't afford to lose very many of those. And at the same time, there are going to be other measures, including confirmations, where if you're going to block Trump from doing reckless, crazy things or appointing reckless, terrible people, you need some Republicans. And what Schumer needs to do is to keep the spotlight and the focus and the onus on the maybe dozen Senate Republicans who are going to be at least pushed at times to move away from reflexive party loyalty to keep the country from getting into very bad places. Yeah. And this is why I'm thinking that over the next two, maybe four years, Lindsey Graham, Jeff Flake, Susan Collins, McCain, Sass, we could put a couple others in there, maybe Bob Corker on some issues, Lamar yeah, Alexander. Lamar but these, Alexander. Lamar, but these are the most, pretty much the most important people to our democracy. Uh, I think there's no question about that. And I keep coming back to and repeating that uh, phrase that Lindsey Graham used during the course of the campaign. There comes a time when you put country ahead of party. Uh, now, you know, I could make the case that it should always be the time. Um, but even if you don't make it that way all the time, and you do have political parties, and you're going to have some loyalty, we are into 
uncharted territory where more and more often that is going to be a challenge for those Republicans. And you have to keep their feet to the fire. The fact that it is now uh, overwhelmingly the case that Putin and the Russians made an overt attempt not just to mess around in our democracy, but to subvert it entirely, and that you have a solid core of Republicans in Congress, including the Speaker of the House, who wanted to shrug it off instead of confronting it directly, is to me, just beyond chilling, and that Graham and uh, McCain have now almost pushed McConnell to jump on board that position uh, is at least a little bit encouraging. But now the question is going to be when you get some of these really bad cabinet choices, and especially what could be even worse sub-cabinet choices uh, that can be confirmed with a simple majority, how often will these senators step up uh, to save uh, uh, us from Trump. That's my very next question. Is there uh, a number of cabinet choices that might scan as overly uh, rejecting? Can you reject four, five, or six without it causing some sort of crisis, even though it's in their in their uh, ability to do so? And that's made me very nervous because I think they're going to face the pressure that also comes from the other larger forces uh, that now dominate in our society. The big money that is careened out of control, where the threat of having the Club for Growth and some of these other organizations you know, pour millions into attacking you, whether you're up for re-election or not, mobilizing outside forces, including talk radio and blogs, to attack. Uh, how much will they want to take that? How much can they withstand? Can you get different coalitions of two, three, four, or five senator, Republican senators saying, I can't accept this one, and reject uh, a half dozen? And can you hope under those circumstances that what you end up with is a president, and you know, I have to believe that many of these choices are not being made by Trump, they're being made by Pence. He's kind of outsourcing some of this. Yeah. Um, and probably with the active participation of Bannon and Flynn, uh, which is itself frightening. But at what point do they say, you know what, let's not pick some of these extreme uh, or inappropriate people, maybe we should go back to picking better people? Or do you double down? Uh, you know, remember, we had Richard Nixon at one point pick an, uh, a, a reasonable person uh, for the Supreme Court in uh, Judge Hainsworth. He was voted down, and uh, the response of Nixon was to say, screw you, and he picked somebody utterly inappropriate, uh, Harold Carswell. Uh, Nixon, far more balanced than what we have now, uh, you know, came back the next time after the second rejection uh, with somebody who is going to pass muster. Who knows what a, uh, an alpha male like Trump will do under those circumstances? But, you know, we got to have Republican senators who will hold the line on some of these things. Yes. And I'm heartened by the fact that McCain just won election and Collins won in 2014 and Graham, I think, won in 2014. So they're not. And, Susan, and, and Murkowski, uh, who is going to be, I hope, a player in some of this, uh, who also just won. So Right. Norman Ornstein is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He, along with Thomas Mann, who I think I may have misidentified, Thomas Mann's at Brookings, are the authors of several books, including It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. And I do have to say, since he wrote that, it's even worse than than then. Thank you so much, Norman. Sure, Mike. Good to talk to you. 
And now the spiel. Paul Krugman won the Nobel Prize for Economics, not for Twitter. Here's an example why. The media will face their first test of the Trump era in the inauguration itself. Early indications are that it will be poorly attended and that the protest on Saturday will draw bigger crowds. Will this be reported? Some may remember how media downplayed Iraq war protests. Listen, if Trump's huge crowds, big crowds at rallies during the election were to be poo-pooed as a poor indicator of electoral impact, and even though he won, they did not indicate more support. I mean, she got more votes, right? But smaller crowds. He had bigger crowds in states that she won, like Colorado and Nevada. So if all that's true, that when Trump gets the big crowd, we say that is a poor indicator of appeal during the election, we have to be consistent with the inauguration. The idea that the inauguration will be poorly attended as an indication of popularity or legitimacy, come on, it's a pointless exercise. I've been hearing, oh, it could be one of the lowest rated inaugurals. Who cares? Thinking Nielsen ratings equals popular support is a dumb thing that Trump might tweet. And comparing protesters to inaugural crowds is also unfair. Inaugural crowds have to be ticketed. They go through layers of security. They're asked to stay in one place for long periods of time in the cold. Protesters are all in different cities, and they have much greater freedom of movement. Plus, the city holding the inauguration went for Hillary Clinton 282,000 to 12,000. So Trump's not a big draw. Also, if protests translated to the legitimacy of an issue then abortion should be banned because the March for Life regularly outdraws pro-choice marches. I have a similar take when it comes to Jennifer Holliday and the B Street Band pulling out of inaugural activities. They kind of seem mow-mowed into it. You know that phrase? Shamed by the avant-garde. They were fearful of offending fans. They were threatened with boycotts or worse if they didn't say to Trump, and I am telling you I'm not going. And also, you can't start a fire without a spark. And furthermore, I met Wanda when she was employed behind the counter of Route 60's Bob Big Boy. Not all of these are really applicable to the election. Now, I followed the B Street Band decision pretty closely because I'm a member of a few E Street Band listservs, and just the B Street Band covers the E Street Band. These listservs tend to cover the bands that cover the E Street Band. And the guys from this band, the B Street Band, they're 63-year-old working-class guys. They're like characters out of a Springsteen song or a Trump rally, and they were pretty conflicted. They're not in a position to turn down gigs, but they also do want to honor the music of Springsteen. So when the guitarist for the actual E Street band, Gary Talent, the bass player, tweeted his consternation at the B Street band playing, well, that's like the words of a saint telling you that you're being sacrilegious. And then Stephen Van Zant of the E Street band gave some ambiguous advice, but said, you know, politics and art are the same. That's like a passage in the actual Bible. I mean, it's open to theological interpretation. Some guy will say, oh, it's a mystery. The Holy Ghost himself, Bruce Springsteen, he was silent, but the B Street Band, in an attempt to serve him, to give him thanks and praise, they pulled out. It was a very Catholic decision. But I feel a little conflicted about this. I would never tell an artist to jeopardize their own sense of conviction. But it seems like the B Street Band's higher calling was the fact that they booked this gig back in 2013, had no idea who would be president, and liked to play for crowds, entertain crowds at a New Jersey rally, and get paid for it. And just facing an angry backlash for entertaining the wrong crowd doesn't seem a hallmark of an open society. Or maybe it is. There are cases when it is. I would be quite upset 
if the B Street Band played a white pride rally. Although, have you seen the demographics of the Springsteen crowd? Anyway, if all you see in the inauguration of a U.S. president is that man who's holding his hand on the Bible, I think you miss a little bit about democracy. The irony of American democracy, of the greatness of American democracy, is the stuff that makes it most great is also the stuff that makes us most angry. When we elect a leader, it's almost always in a tightly fought contest. And the winner, more often than not recently, doesn't have the support of most of the people. Over the last quarter century, the president has been the man who most of the public did not support, at least initially. Two out of the last three presidents, first one office, with fewer votes than their main rival. Three of the last four won office with a minority of the votes. None, when you factor in the epidemic of non-voting, even came close to entering office with a quarter of the public actually having cast a vote for the man. But Trump doesn't actually fit into these traditions or many traditions. He breaks with the past. He violates norms. He violates logic and decency. He is a threat. His makeup, his belief system, such as it is, his intemperance, it all bodes for terrible things. But a threat is not a detonation. Trump could go off or he could veer off into some unexpected path. The guy loves love, wants to be seen as popular and successful, will ignore or spar with or verbally slap around the truth to get to this place of love, but maybe he'll rein it in when his decisions become unpopular? Should his agenda spark outrage among the masses of people? There's a school of thought that says hoping for the best is to be foolish or naive or enabling. Well, I don't think of it as hoping for the best. I would say we shouldn't close off the possibility that Trump is less than terrible. You know, we shouldn't right now have come to the conclusion that our worst fears are a fait accompli. So what to do with the 50, last I saw it was 53 Democratic members of Congress boycotting the inauguration. That's fine. As long as there is an inauguration, you can take your stand. It's sort of a weird thing to say. It's fine to take a stand as long as it's symbolic, but if it gets enough energy behind it, then you really should rethink it. That's a little odd. But I started looking at the numbers. Mary and I crunched the numbers of these 53 members of Congress who are boycotting the inauguration. Uh, There are 191 Democrats in the House of Representatives. So GovTrack ranks every member of Congress in ideology, from conservative to liberal. The median Democrat would be 95th in ideology. Of these 53, there are 10 who are more conservative than the average Democrat in Congress, which is, you know, pretty Democratic. So it's an overwhelmingly more liberal than average group, even among Democrats. And that's not surprising, and that's not wrong. Progressive means something. A true adherence to progressive ideas would make Donald Trump seem like anathema to your firmest beliefs. But then I started looking at the vote. Of the 53 who aren't going, Carol Shea Porter of New Hampshire was the only one who had a close election in 2016. I mean, none of them had an electoral victory that was smaller than 10% of the vote except for Carol Shea Porter. Now, at first glance, you could say, oh, that's why, because this is a group that's not risking anything. Or you could also say, well, okay, they're liberal members of Congress. They obviously have liberal constituencies who vote for them in a big way. They are representing their voters. But I thought of something else. None of the representatives who are boycotting 
have that much contact with or really owe much of a debt to Trump voters, the actual U.S. citizens who wanted Trump and voted for Trump. True, there are more Clinton voters, but Trump did win by our crazy electoral rules, and he has tens of millions of people who are expecting him to become president. It would be so disenfranchising to these voters in a way that has never happened before to conclude that Trump is illegitimate and to act on that conclusion in a way other than a boycott. Illegitimate could mean a lot of things, but I take it to mean that he literally should not be seated as president, and I can't go that far. I think the election was a terrible outcome. I think it was not an entirely kosher outcome. Hello, Vlad. But it is the stated preference of millions of Americans. Your fellow citizen making a choice is the definition of democracy. Your fellow citizen making a bad choice is a major part of that definition much of the time. I know we feel we quite possibly are imperiled by that choice, but I do think that would have greater costs than benefits if we were to deny the consequences of democracy. That's it for today's show. Just producer Chris Berube always believed in preserving the norms of decency and good behavior. But then he saw the first few years of Three's company and watched as the norm fell. Mary Wilson, just producer, demands a return to the regular synth-inflected Motown records of the mid-80s when music did its job. Back then, the norm would rock well. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, oversees a quasi-military organization that will not give in to outrageous modes of dress. They're the norm core. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, does not believe in addressing envelopes with crazy stamps or exotic return address labels. He's a norm mailer. The gist. Not quite living up to our oath. First, do no norm. Umpru depru dupru. Thanks for listening.